Will you pray with me before we look to God's word? Lord, come with power as we open your word. Write its eternal truth on on our hearts that we might know you and love you and live for you so that your praise might be found in us and through us might be found in all the peoples of the earth because you are worthy of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text for this morning, Psalm 66. That's page 480. Psalm 66, page 480. Listen to God's word. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear, all you who fear God. And I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This is God's word. Last week, Pastor Nick preached from Psalm 50 and urged us to guard our hearts from turning worship into an empty ritual. Our psalm for this morning continues in that similar vein, but whereas Psalm 50 stressed the need for us to have a living faith, Psalm 66 stresses the need for us to have vibrant worship. Have you ever caught yourself worshiping God with your hands in your pockets? Or texting about lunch plans 
during the sermon. Or critiquing the music and evaluating it rather than singing along. These are symptoms of a spiritual disease. We can call it shallow worship syndrome. None of us is exempt from this disease. It plagues all of us from time to time. Perhaps we can alleviate the symptoms. Uh, We can duct tape our pockets shut. Uh, Make sure it matches the khaki, though. That would be an even bigger Uh, no-no. We can turn our phones off. We can grit our teeth through that rough song that we don't particularly care for. But while these symptoms can go away, and while the disease can sort of go into remission, These symptoms, present or not, reveal to us something about our own hearts and minds. It reveals to us that our hearts are preoccupied with other desires that we consider of higher priority. It reveals to us that our minds are more satisfied and feel more productive contemplating what the the next things we're going to do with our day rather than contemplating who God has revealed himself to be. These symptoms reveal our true priorities and values. So what's the cure? I think all of us can say that we've at least been tempted to do these things from time to time. What's the cure? How do we worship God rightly when we're distracted so easily? And Psalm 66 tells us that we praise God rightly when we fill our minds with the remembrance of his awesome deeds. We praise God rightly when we fill our minds with the remembrance of his awesome deeds. So if we want to guard ourselves against the distractedness and shallowness that can become all too common in our worship, we must actively remind ourselves and recall the greatness of God. There are 20 verses in this psalm, and these 20 verses can be broken up into two main sections. First, in verses 1 through 12, the psalmist tells us how God wants us to praise Him publicly. And so we see words like, we all and peoples. And second, in verses 13 through 20, the psalmist tells us how God wants us to praise him personally. And so we see words like, I. So first, God wants us to praise him publicly. What kind of public worship pleases God? Is it the liturgy of a particular denomination? Or the style of a certain band? Maybe these things are important to God in some sense. But what's most important to God is that we worship Him with exuberance, with joy. So the psalmist tells us in verses 1 through 4 that in our public worship, we are to praise God exuberantly for His power. I'm going to switch to the red mic or else I'm going to. 
turn this one off. That's better. The one-armed preacher. Okay, so verses 1 through 4. Our public worship, we're to praise God exuberantly for his power. The psalm begins with, with a bang, doesn't it? Shout for joy to God, all the earth. We are to give God all our excitement and enthusiasm in our worship. You know, it's been well said, I believe it was General Booth, the Salvation Army, who said, gloomy Christianity is the devil's religion. So we must be very careful not to mistake gloom for reverence, somberness for awe. Joy should be overwhelming in our public worship. And in verse 2, the psalmist continues to describe what this exuberant worship, what our exuberant worship should consist of. He writes, sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise, which literally uh, reads in the Hebrew, make his praise glorious. Now, the psalmist is talking about the quality of our worship, isn't he? John Calvin writes, The psalmist is not satisfied with our declaring God's praises moderately. He insists that we should celebrate his goodness in some measure proportionate to his excellence. Now, what does that mean? It means that half-hearted, casual praise won't cut it. You know, we just came back from the youth trip, and Russell Nolan and I were driving. We were constantly being, being shouted orders from the back, mostly from Wyatt Stevens, turn it up, turn the music up. So the radio, a song came on that he likes, and he cranks it up. We, we want to crank it up. It's sort of like that. Make his praise glorious. Don't just praise him. Turn it up. Get enthusiastic about it. But that isn't to say that our enthusiasm in worship should be dependent on the, the beat of the music. Our enthusiasm, that would be idolatry, wouldn't it? We're dependent on something other than God. But our enthusiasm in worship should be fueled by our consistent acknowledgement of God's awesome deeds and great power. So in verse 3, the psalmist exhorts us to say to God, how awesome are your deeds or your works, the things you've done. God's works are truly awesome, by which we mean not only that God's works are worthy of our approval, but that God's works are awesome in the sense that they are worthy of our fear. The, the King James Version gets, gets it a little bit better as it renders this verse, Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Like a loud clap of thunder that shakes you to the core. We had one of those, I believe it was Thursday, wasn't it? Or Friday. That thunder just shakes you to the core. Or like a flash of lightning that makes the darkness of night appear like daylight for a split second. God's works in that way are not just admirable, they are terrifying. There's something to be afraid of. 
In fact, God's works are so terrifying, his power is so great, the psalmist says his enemies come cringing to him like a dog with its tail between their legs. They don't want to come to him, but they're terrified of him. They surrender to him because they are scared. And this leads the psalmist to make a profound prophetic statement in verse 4. He says, with confidence, all the earth worships you. They sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Now, what the psalmist actually means is that all the earth will worship you. Because they don't right now, right? All the earth will worship you. But he's so confident in God's power that it's as good as done. He speaks in the present tense. It is bound to happen because of God's great power. Should we not worship our all-powerful God with exuberance? We ooh and ah over a fireworks show on a Saturday night And then we yawn in the presence of God on a Sunday morning. (laughs) But the awesome deeds of God, the mighty works of God, makes that fireworks show you're so crazy about look like a sparkler. Should we not ooh and ah over this all-powerful God? Should we not clap for him? And shout to him and sing to him. But the question still remains for us. It's not yet been defined. What are these awesome deeds and great works? To which works is the psalmist referring and insisting that we think about so often in our public worship? We might think that they're God's mighty acts of creation. Man, when he, when he, uh, when that supernova exploded in that next galaxy. But the psalmist isn't saying that. In verses 5 through 7, the psalmist tells us that we are to rejoice not in God's mighty acts of creation, although we are to do that. But we are to rejoice most in God's mighty act of salvation. We need to remind ourselves in our worship that our God has a history of rescuing his people. That's his resume. When we sing praises to God, we aren't just praising him for rescuing us. We're praising him for always coming to the aid of his people. He's always done that. So in verse 6, the psalmist highlights God's rescue of the people of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus. Uh, The psalmist recounts, he turned the sea, he's talking about the Red Sea, into dry land. They passed through the river, and that is the Jordan River, which separated the people of Israel from the promised land. They passed through that river on foot. The psalmist was calling all the people of Israel, none of whom, by the way, was present to participate in the Exodus, which happened like 400 years plus earlier. The psalmist was calling all the people of Israel to remember vividly God's supreme demonstration of his power to save under the Old Covenant. 
God really showed what he was capable of when he sent plagues on Egypt, when he parted the waters in Egypt. He showed his power. And Israel's worship from then on was to be centered, was to look back and be centered on God's mighty act of salvation for them. And so must ours. You know, as impressive and as good of a movie as the Exodus makes, it was the JV version of how God would work an even mightier salvation for us in the Lord Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans 1.16 that the cross is God's supreme demonstration of his power to save. You know this verse. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the very power of God. It, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We have an even greater salvation than the Israelites under the Old Covenant. When God wanted to save his people from Egypt, he sent a servant to deliver them. But when God wanted to save us from sin, he sent his own son to die for us. We've been rescued from a greater enemy. We have a greater salvation and we have an even greater savior. As we've been telling our youth uh, this past week on our retreat, we are to live a cross-centered life. We never get away from it. It is the central climactic event of history. And because of that, It is to be central in our lives and even more specifically in our worship. Cross-centered. God's power and salvation centered. How do we respond rightly to these things? To the way he saved us, to his mighty acts of salvation? We can respond like Israel did. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch, literally spy on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. So God calls us to worship him with humble joy, always reflecting on the great salvation he has worked for us. Now in verses 8 through 12, the psalmist calls upon us again to praise God. He sort of starts all over again. Except this time, we are to praise God for preserving us through trials. In verses 8 and 9, the psalmist invites us to praise God for keeping us alive. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard who has kept our soul among the living, right? He's kept us alive and has not let our feet slip. Has God ever protected you from what you thought was certain death? I'll bet he has. And if he hasn't, he will someday. But sometimes it can be difficult to praise God when we suffer. We wonder why these trials come upon us. If, if God loves us, as he says he does, why then does he allow us to suffer from sickness and loss 
and sadness. And if you ask that question, you need to brace yourself for the answer. In Psalm, in verse 10, the psalmist answers us rather straightforwardly that God not only allows our suffering to come upon us, he causes our suffering to come upon us. Now, that's tough. I'm not saying, the psalmist is not saying, that God creates or is the author of evil or suffering, only that he brings it about to test us, the psalmist says. For you, O God, have tested us. Who tested us? God. You have tried us as silver is tried. But surely we can attribute these sufferings to something else or someone else. Well, sure. There are always various causes for our sufferings. But the psalmist's point is that ultimately our suffering is in the hands of God. Look at verses 11 and 12. He, he keeps making this point. You brought us into the net. A reference to slavery. Probably talking about Egypt, right? You laid a crushing burden on our backs. A reference to oppression and how hard it was. You let men ride over our heads. Referring to these crushing military defeats that Israel had to endure. We went through fire and through water. Water. Does it bother you that God brings about suffering? Our suffering in particular? I have a feeling it does. Makes us uncomfortable, and that's okay. But I believe that God's role in bringing about our suffering tends to bother us most when we're not suffering at all. We're comfortable believing that cancer selects its victims on its own terms until we get cancer. And then we say, God, why did you give me this? But it doesn't make him evil. In fact, it makes him very, very, very good. Is a doctor who gives you a flu immunization to be blamed for giving you the flu? (laughs) Of course not. Even if you started feeling sick after the shot was given, you would never press charges against the doctor who gave it to you because you know that the sickness will not end in death. It will only lead to your long-term health. The sickness saves you. It's necessary. You see the point? God only causes suffering in our lives to heal us, to refine us, to sharpen us. More than that, he promises to be with us every step of the way. And once we understand this about God, we can praise him even in our trials. We can say to him with Job, who lost everything, 
Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Because I know what you're doing. I trust you. And isn't that the psalmist's perspective as well? He says at the very end of verse 12, yet, you brought all this upon us, yet, you have brought us out to a place of abundance. God always rewards his sufferers with an abundance of blessing. If you're suffering this morning, know for certain that it is not in vain. Know that God is with you And know that even right now, God is storing up for you blessing upon blessing upon blessing. So suffer well, child of God. And show us on Sunday mornings how to praise God, even when it is immeasurably difficult for you to do so. That's why the psalmist includes this in his section of public worship. We are to make our suffering public, as public as can be, so that everyone can look at you and say, how is that happening? He's pra- she's praising God, and I know what's going on with her. That makes God's praise glorious, doesn't it? So the psalmist has showed us so far how God wants us to praise him publicly. We should praise God with exuberance for his power. We are to rejoice in God for his mighty acts of salvation. And we are to bless God even in our trials. But in the remaining several verses of this psalm, the psalmist makes things more personal. You think, well, how much more personal can the psalmist get? In verses 13 through 20, he tells us that God wants us to praise him personally. Look, the way public worship becomes vibrant in this church is by each one of us participating in public worship wholeheartedly with our whole being. How do we do that? Two ways the psalm encourages us to do that. In verses 13 through 15. The psalmist tells each one of us to come into God's presence with a sacrifice of praise. He exemplifies this for us. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. He's a participant in worship. He's not a spectator. He's contributing. He's not merely consuming. And the psalmist sees this kind of worship as his duty. Look, he says, I will perform my vows to you. Can you say that? But isn't it fitting? Worship is obligatory. Isn't it fitting? God saved us from sin and death and hell and Satan. Should we not worship him? But of course, our worship isn't mere obligation. It's a delight. Notice in verse 15, the psalmist doesn't just do what is required. He goes overboard. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. He's not giving God the lean stuff nobody wants. He's not giving him the leftovers. 
He's giving him the choicest of his flock. He's giving him the best portions he has. So yes, praise is our duty, but it's not like doing the dishes. It's like taking your wife on a Caribbean cruise on your 25th anniversary. Is it mandatory? Yes. It better be. If, if you don't believe it's so, then you'll find out. Is it a burden? Do you want me to ask you in the pool or out of it? It's a delight. None of God's commandments are burdensome. In the same way, our praise is our joy. It's our delight. It's the opportunity that God gives us to say thank you to him. But the psalmist makes things even more personal in his final section. In verses 16 through 20, the psalmist tells us that you and I are to testify personally of God's mercy toward us. We are to testify, give witness, okay, personally of God's mercy toward us. He writes in verse 16, come and hear, come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. What a great question we can ask each other on Sunday mornings. What has God done for your soul this week? Don't you love it recently how Pastor Nick has opened up, uh, opened up in the middle of the service for us to give personal testimony of God's grace in our lives? I love it. I think it's wonderful. He didn't even know I was going to say that, so he came up today and said, I want to give to testify or testimony. I'm like, you stole my word, too. This, this is what our worship is to be like. Here's what the psalmist would say if he were with us on one of those occasions when, when it was opened up for us to give personal testimony. Let this be a template for you. Verses 17 through 19. I cried to him with my mouth, or I prayed to him, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Is there anything extraordinary in the psalmist's testimony? Not that I can see. It appears to be the testimony of one who tries to walk with God week after week. He's thanking God for answering his prayers. Testimonies like these seem ordinary. But they, in reality, they are the very method God uses to build up his church. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.15 that by each one of us, each one of us, speaking the truth in love to our neighbor, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We need to use our mouths on Sunday morning. We need to anticipate the opportunity we will have to share with others the way God has worked in our lives over the past week. And then the psalmist concludes in verse 20, unsurprisingly, with praise. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Whatever you've gone through, you can always say, Blessed be your name, as we sang earlier. 
God wants us to make his praise glorious. And don't we have good reason? He is the almighty. He is the most powerful being in the universe. His enemies come cringing to him in terror. But he's welcomed us with open arms. He sent his son to die for us. Great cost. He promises his abiding presence with us through trials. Shouldn't we praise him? Shouldn't we shout to him and sing to him? Bring your sacrifice of praise and bless him from the very depths of your heart. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you that you are a powerful God and that your power is at work in us. You have shown us your power in the gospel of your son Christ. And you are continuing to show each one of us your power. By the way, your spirit takes residence in our hearts and transforms us into people who bring you praise that you deserve. Help us, Lord to make your praise glorious, not to go about this casually or distractedly, but to give you our full attention and our heart's affection because you are awesome and there is none like you. Help us to do this. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.